Right now, there are more than 1,400 cold cases in Jacksonville. 1,400. They're more than a stack of files sitting in a vault collecting dust. They're a constant reminder that someone got away with murder. I'm Paige Kelton with Action News Jax, and we've partnered with Project Cold Case and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to put the spotlight on unsolved local crimes. The goal? To generate a tip that leads to an arrest. For the family of Francis Gordon, the right tip could end years of waiting for answers and justice. Here's Action News Jack's Lorena Inclan. This is my daughter Frances with her two girls. Frances Gordon was the youngest daughter of Joe Hoag's seven children, but there was something about Frankie, as he called her, that made her different. Such a sparkling little girl and she just loved her dad. She, she would hug me every chance she got, you know, just a little more emotional than the others, I guess. She was 37 years old, married with three children, when her life was taken in a violent way. It was closed casket. She'd been beat over the head with a hammer and naked, left naked. It was September 30th, 1996. Her body was found next to this building on Waller Street, hidden under debris and bushes. Hogue was in upstate New York when he got the news. I drove like a crazy man, cried all the time, you know. I, I, I don't talk about too much. 21 years later, the pain is still fresh. I'm Action News Jack spoke to JSO's cold case supervisor, Sergeant Dan Jansen, about the evidence in this case. I noticed also that there was some blood evidence that was collected, and this was 96, so that's what's really piqued my interest. I don't know that they've done a, a tremendous amount of DNA processing on this particular case. That's what I want to see. Sergeant Jansen tells me his team is giving everything in Gordon's case a fresh set of eyes and hopes new technology holds the key. Gordon's family tells me they've always suspected someone. I think he's been walking around long enough, the person I'm referring to, and I, I think he needs to pay for what he did. But no one has ever been named a suspect in the case. Hogue has this message for anyone who may have information. Just do the right thing. Okay, Francis Ann Gordon, who was she? What happened to her? So uh, Frankie Gordon, so, um, she's a, a mother, a wife, um, someone's daughter, and uh, she, was, she was killed by blunt force trauma uh, back in 96, I believe it was. It, it was almost the anniversary, September 30th of 96, I believe is when it occurred. Um, we were asked to look into this particular case, and, and right now it's, um, it's kind of fresh. Uh, we just cracked the book open. Uh, doing the cursory portion of it. Um, there's some things that, right from the cursory level, that look like, well, there might be enough here to sit down and let's staff this and let's talk about it as a team and let's see where we can go with it. This is actually the case file right here. Um, and what will happen is I'll show you a little bit later that uh, back in the day we did everything in three ring binders and now we're, we've moved to digital technology with virtual case files and what have you. Um, but we'll crack this book open and it's already been digitized so this we already have it in electronic format as well. Um, there was some information that was given back in the day. This is, this is actually her with her children um, that was provided to us and was given to the media. Uh, when this happened, and I believe this picture was taken in 92, so it was prior to the 
um, several years prior to the homicide. Uh, and then there were some articles that were given into the, uh, the Times Union at the time as well that we still have in, a, in the case file. So we like to look at everything. We like to look at not just the evidence and the witnesses in there, but we look, we look at what the media said and you know what was provided by the families. Um, my understanding and just a little bit that I've looked at is uh, Frankie had uh, some dependency issues that she was working through and it was creating a burden on the family. And so um, that, that was one of the elements that kind of led to to her demise, uh, though she, she certainly didn't get deserved to be murdered like she was. Um, so we're looking at all the evidence in this particular case, and and I think I think it's it's worth taking a look at, quite frankly. Do we know anything about a potential suspect? So there's several individuals, and, and I won't name names at this this juncture, that were looked at at the time. Um, uh, I noticed also that there was some blood evidence that was collected, and this was 96. So that's what's really piquing my interest is that if we got some blood evidence that's collected back then, and most of the um, most of the time, all they did back then was blood typing. You know, was was it O negative or you know? So they do their blood typing, but I don't know that they've done a, a tremendous amount of DNA processing on this particular case. That's what I want to see. I want to look into there and see what we have what's been done and what's not been done. And, you know, I, tell, I talked previously about, you know, sending bits and pieces of information. And, and I also want to reach out to the, to the lead detective on the case and, and get his opinion of what he thought. And, you know, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll really start diving into it if we feel like that meets the protocols mm -hmm. that, that we should. Where did the crime occur? You know, right off the top of my head, I believe it was off Waller Street, if I'm not mistaken, which is going to be on the west side of Jacksonville. So um, was it wasn't. It was it in a home or? No, no, no it, it was outside. It was, was it out, okay? Yep, it was an outside crime scene. Mm -hmm. um, there was she was her body was hidden under some some um, landscaping debris, some bushes mm -hmm. and what have you, um, and that's where she was she was located. Mm -hmm. Any potential witnesses that you know of from looking at the case? Or? I haven't gotten that far yet okay. to the witness portion. Um, right now, generally the first thing I'll look at is um, the evidence because that kind of helps me mm -hmm. set the tone as far as what do I have evidence-wise. And not to discount witnesses because we will look at them. But if I feel like I have strong evidence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down that road first. You know, and, then, and then what we'll do is we'll take a look at the witnesses and see what, you know, what they have to offer if they're even around still. So, How much can family help too when you're looking at cases? Oh, well, one of the first things that all hom homicide investigators do is a little bit of victimology. Um, we want to know, you know, what was her lifestyle? What was she doing? You know, it, like I mentioned before, she had a dependency issue. Was she buying drugs? Who was she buying drugs from? Do you know who that was? You know, um, she was an adult and she had a husband and, and so, you know, we'll talk to him and say, well, you know, you knew she had a dependency issue, so where do you think she was getting her drugs from? You know, could this be the person that she went to meet, you know, or is it something else, you know? Um, was, I don't, I can't say this in this particular case, but is she having an affair? You know, is she, if she is, uh, how does this come into play? Because we have those cases as well. So uh, you have to, you have to vet every avenue that, that may come into play in a particular case. And you have to ask them some tough questions. You do, you do, it's not easy. Even in, even in clean cases, it's not easy. Tough questions have to be asked because, um, and you, let's face it, you really have to, you have to eliminate husbands and wives and children and 
you know, because they're potential suspects at first uh, in a domestic type situation, you know, where, the, where, where there is a husband and wife and they're living together, you know. Um, so there's always tough questions. I'm sure Ryan would tell you there was tough questions in his dad's case, even though it was a robbery that occurs outside the home, you know. So uh, there's always very tough questions. And, and we explain that up front. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ryan, is there anything you'd like to add about this case? I don't know how involved you were. This case came through our, um, through our website as well a while back, and we have had uh, Frank, Francis Frankie Gordon on our uh, Faces of Unsolved mm -hmm. Homicide portion of our website for a, a number of months, and she was actually slated to be a cold case spotlight coming up in, in the coming weeks, uh, but I didn't necessarily call Dan about this case. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, I think a family member maybe stopped by here or something and, and mm -hmm. kind of brought it to light. Again, showing how important it is for family to, to just ask the question every now and then, you know. Um, but, but it was on both of our radars and, um, and so we each had some information. Again, our role in this is usually family driven. So, um, so we had a few family members that we had already uh, established contact and communication with and JSO had their, their point of contacts that they were establishing communication with. And, uh, and so that's kind of where we overlap and, and come together and try to help that family out. Yeah, he just reminded me that, um, that this originally was, um, the catalyst for this was her dad came into the police memorial building and asked to speak about the case. And, and I remember meeting with him just outside the Forsyth Street entrance. And um, he kind of explained to me that, you know, what the ins and outs of what he knew was and asked if I would take a look at it and give him a call. And I, of course, I'll certainly do that. And I, and I explained to him what our protocols were and, and, you know, had the, again, another tough conversation all these years later to say, I'm, I can't make any promises, but we will certainly crack a book and take a look and see if there's anything that's worth digging even deeper. You know? And so, um, and that's what we're doing in this particular case. And I've, we've been in communication with a, a couple of the family members in this case, primarily the dad, because he's the one that came to, and talked to us. Now, in general, regarding evidence, DNA evidence in particular, do the people who analyze it decide on the order and what's more important, or do recent cases come first? What's the thought process there? Do you have to fight for those resources to get evidence back in a timely manner for some of these older cases? Okay, so, you know, when it comes to that blood evidence and, and prior, prioritization, easy for you to say, um, it's, that's not our call really at the end of the day. What we do is we try to ask for assistance from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement whenever, whenever we have a high priority uh, case. For an example, the uh, Savannah Gold case recently, um, she was missing. So uh, if we have some blood or DNA evidence that we need to process um, because she's outstanding and it's a brand new case, that's going to take a, a, a priority over, you know, a cold case that's been unresolved for 40 years, you know. So, um, and I'm not going to ask them to, to put me in front of everyone else when we have a hot active case that someone's life could be in jeopardy and if we can find them and make all the difference world is saving their life that's obvious, obviously paramount to a unresolved homicide of 40 years so but there is a it's you know kind of like a first come first serve basis you know we'll submit it they'll fit it in and when they when they do dna testing my understanding and talking to my daughter it's not like we only do one case at a time they'll send in a tray of dna and it's it's 
put through the robot and processed. And so it's, you know, your case is in there with several other cases. So whether you have blood evidence or a hair strand or a fingerprint, it's, it, they're sort of on the same category as far as, that, as, far as physical evidence or, or as far as that not? Well, not necessarily. Okay. You know I mean? One could take priority over the other. You know, it just depends on what I, how I, when I say, I keep referring to it as I, but we as an agency, we as a unit and we as detectives, if we see something that we want to run or a detective says, hey, listen, Sarge, we, we have this fingerprint and it's unresolved and I, I think this is a priority. We need to focus on it. Or we have this witness that's outstanding. We need to find this witness because they hold the key or what, whatever it is, you know, because it, it varies from case to case, um, whether it's a fiber or blood, it, you know, we'll, we'll run down that rabbit hole as far as we can. Um, the time it becomes, uh, where, where time becomes a crunch, the only example I can come up with is, you know, I think about the Hyde case where now you have your killer identified, he's out there, and if you'll remember in that case, he's working as a counselor at a church and he's, re you know, allegedly responsible for killing a child. Mm -hmm. Well, well, suddenly, you know, even though it's been years, listen, we can't afford to have another victim, so we need to push the priority, prior, you know, priority of that particular uh, evidence. Uh, or you talk about um, the Kamaya Mobley case where, listen, we think we have her identified and we've located her in a, out of state in another jurisdiction. Let's get, uh, let's get a court order to get some buccal swabs and let's get these run right here right now so we don't have this family's life upside down. And she wasn't the first person in that particular case where we ran buccal swabs to, to assure that, you know, that wasn't the actual Kamaya Mobley. So um, it depends on what the situation is. You know, so there can be situations where cold cases will take a front seat, but it's not often. I just thought about something with, with the Kamaya Mobley thing that you wanted to make sure that this was the Kamaya Mobley that was abducted. Do you get sometimes, you know, anxiety or I, I don't know, obviously, you know, you can't be wrong with that because no. there's a family that's <laughs> no, absolutely. waiting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that was, uh, yeah, we were on pins and needles for that 24 hours because, uh, in fact, in that particular case, I send... Uh, I sent my lead detective and um, oh, I sent the partners up there. We have four detectives. Two of them went up to South Carolina. Two remained back here, and we coordinated efforts between our two locations to try to get things done. Once we, once the two detectives made it up there, uh, Glenn Warkington and, and uh, Margaret Radigan, once they were up there, they said, "Hey, Sarge, we got even more evidence that we need to get processed. This is definitely looking like it's her," you know, because. They explained about the birth certificates and being the falsification of those and talking to individuals and it just started really unearthing once they got up there and started poking and prodding. And so they said, we're going to grab a court order and get the DNA from uh, Alexis Manigo, who was her assumed name. And then once we get the DNA, we need it rushed to FDLE. So I sent the other two that were down here to run up there, grab the DNA, bring it back here, and I literally they just drove up there, exchanged hands, brought it back down here, and gave it to FDLE, and it, we turned it in 24 hours. So there's a perfect example of when that prioritization comes into play, and we have to get it done right here, right now, because you're right, you're, you're upsetting someone's, someone's life. But turns out that, you know, you talk about cracking a case open. This came in as a tip through, through um, NECMEC, and when we were going through the case file, um, we had, I recalled that we had a, uh, we had 
very grainy video and again a sketch of who we believe the abductor was and so the tip comes in hey look in, look into facebook and there 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 was somebody out there who's claiming that she was abducted and there was it was limited information and so the first thing we did is we jumped on facebook started looking at all the and they gave us a name alexis manigo so we started looking at all the alexis manigos and there wasn't that many 20 something i think um first one was like 50 years old eh, that's not her the timing's bad so we started you know basically going through the list and saying okay that's possible that's definitely not you know and so uh we we get to um who is now you know who's really kamaya when we get to her facebook set we're kind of sifting through all the photos looking for one with the mother you know so um never really identified one particularly but then we saw a picture of her with an older lady and we thought hmm so i told uh glenn i said hey glenn go grab that case file and break it open get that uh, composite and that the stills we had from the video let's let's take a look at this so he did and um once we go to the vault you'll see why it takes a few minutes to get that done um, we put it out on the conference table. We we're all standing there, and you, you could feel the hair in the back of your neck rise up when you looked at those two pictures side by side. And went, holy smokes, that is her, because you know, she never changed her hairstyle, the way she dressed, everything. You're, you know, and here's the opinion part of it again. You know, you're looking at the picture, going, that is the same person, you know, and and so you know at that point that you're you're on the right yes, track, yeah. but you got to. You know, is it a twin right. or you got to prove it? It's right. not as simple as, well, the picture looks the same, so that's her. Right. You know, so, there's so much more to it. Wow. Right, there's so much more to it. So, but we knew we were on something then. And then, of course, we started calling the schools up there. And the first picture, which will come out in evidence of the Social Security card, was like, it was like, wow, really? You know, so we knew we, knew we were on the right track at that point. But it's, um, there was your, um, your sixth sense as a detective. To look at a picture and go, yeah, we were onto something here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Trust your gut. Yeah. yeah, Project Cold Case wasn't involved in, in that case because you know we typically stick to um, unsolved homicides, and if we do missing persons, it's you know with the assumption there's foul play involved. But I, I think this is a good opportunity to point out, you know, this is a case where people may have believed that that case was just sitting on a shelf for years, except that you know uh, Alexis Manigo was not the first you know young female black female to have her cheek swabbed. To, ident to be identified as Kamaya right. Mobley. Uh, but that stuff doesn't, you know, the, the detectives don't hold a press conference and say, hey, we got a tip that came in, we ran it, it didn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? But for years, uh, tips had come in and they were investigated and, and looked into. And eventually, you know, a good tip came in, the right tip came in, and, and the right person saw something and, and felt the need to come forward and submit that that tip through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and, and that's where, you know, got them there. So that's kind of a model of why it's so important for us to make sure these cases are out in the public eye and for people not to give up hope, um, and that you never know where that information will come well, from. Well, and, and you, you kind of piggybacked on another issue of case integrity. We don't, we don't advertise everything that we're doing, you know, because sometimes it has good results, sometimes it doesn't, and we want to we verify things before we do that, and case integrity is paramount. That's the only hope we have in solving cases. Um, <clears throat> I have a good working relationship with, with Ryan, but I didn't tell him that, hey, we're going to try some new technology in your dad's case. You know, he'll find out about it eventually once we do it and we figure out where we're at with it. 
but I don't advertise that type of thing. And, and so, and it's because of case integrity. You know, had we gotten something and we were still working on it today, Ryan wouldn't know. He wouldn't have known, you know. Even though we have a great working relationship, we're great in partnerships, the case integrity takes front seat to all that. Yeah. So. so at the end of the day, you both want it to be solved, right? So, right. yeah, and that's and the goal, that that's trust. the main goal. Yeah, yeah, and I have that trust that uh, mm -hmm. if there's something I need to know, I'll know when I need to know it. And, and in the meantime, I have learned from immersing myself in, uh, in you know, how law enforcement works um, that they are working it, you know, and, and that's again why it's important for families to share that stuff because if they don't have anything, there's nothing for them to look at. But if somebody does come forward with a tip, they're going to vet that information. They're going to look into that tip and find out if it ends up solving an 18-year-old missing persons case or a 43-year-old, you know, uh, unsolved murder or whether it's a dead end, you mm -hmm. know, uh, and half, you know, a lot of the times we won't even know that, mm -hmm. that they looked into it, but, but it's, it's, it's out there and they're doing their job. And I, and I, I needed to know that as a, mm -hmm. as a survivor of a, of a homicide victim. Uh, and, and I can look families in the eye, you know, particularly with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office investigation with the homicide teams and cold case teams, and I can assure them that I believe with everything in me that they are doing mm -hmm. the absolute best they can to solve the case and that they will look into any information that they receive, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and, and I think that gives, coming from me, that, that is a comfort to the family, you know, uh, because I make sure of it. You know, I, I hold everybody accountable. And, and if I call Dan with a, a case like Barrett that, you know, that he's going to look at, he knows I'm going to keep calling him and asking, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on. And it's good it. to have you because nobody knows better than you what it's like to not have closure and, right. you know, still waiting. And thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you for, for talking about these. Action News Jack's Project Cold Case airs the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month on Action News Jack's at 5.30. You can also find all of our stories, interviews, pictures, and documents on actionnewsjacks.com. Just look for the Project Cold Case button. And listeners, we hope you share this podcast on your social platforms. Lorena and I also welcome your questions. Just tweet us at Paige A.N. Jacks or Lorena A.N. Jacks.